We continue as you open in your Bible to John chapter 6. Book of John chapter 6 for our message this morning. Where else? The episode that takes place in our passage today begins at the beginning of this chapter. And what might be the most monumental miracle that Jesus ever performed. Certainly the most impactful for everyone who followed him. It's the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus comes before a crowd, a multitude, in John chapter 6 to so famously feed the 5,000. It is perhaps the deepest impression of all the miracles Jesus performed for his generation. A generation where nearly everyone went to bed and woke up understanding the pains of real physical hunger. In Jesus' day, there was no one who didn't understand the depths of what it felt like to really need food. And after he had fed them all, they, they gathered up all the leftovers and, and they saw the sign that he had performed and they were saying to one another, this is the prophet who has come into the world. And because of this and all the miracles he'd already been performing, a great multitude had already begun following Jesus in John chapter six. He's as popular as he will ever be amongst the people. So large was his following and so excited by what he had given them. John says in verse 15, they were coming by force to make him king. And Jesus withdraws from that kind of thing. He knows they have misplaced motives, wrong intentions. And so he leaves and the crowd realizes this. And so they get into their own boats and they, they go across to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And they ask him first, when did you get here? But what they really want to know is, when is the next free meal? They wanted a free feast for their stomachs that had been so full from his hands. And they're captivated by the way that he had filled them. And so they, they sought him for the food that he had made. And to the multitudes who were there for the bread that he had fed them, he starts speaking about the bread of life. To masses who, who know only how to think about the physical, Jesus starts speaking to them about the spiritual. To a people, a, a group, a crowd who only knew how to think about the temporal, Jesus starts preaching to them about the eternal. And we learn in John chapter 6 that they don't want much to do with that. Jesus says, I want you to, to so internalize me. That just as you would chew on bread, you take me into yourself and, and I, I will be your very life. In the same way that I fed you bread and it filled your stomach and nourished you, I, I give you myself. I'm the bread that has come down from heaven to give you sustenance and nourishment in ways that physical bread never will. And they have no interest in this at all. They begin grumbling to one another, asking questions. They even argue about whether Jesus is actually talking about eating him as if he's a cannibalist. It's not that they don't understand what he's trying to tell them. It's that they 
don't want to accept it. If you mean, they say, that to follow you is to to incorporate you like like chewing and digesting and absorbing bread so that you're more a part of us than the the bread itself, we'll, we'll, we'll have nothing to do with you. That's not what we came for. And so our passage this morning comes in the midst of John chapter 6, and we have reached an impasse. It's the first and greatest crisis in the ministry of Jesus. Beginning in verse 60, it says that therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? And they're right, you know. These disciples, this great crowd that's following him here, it's not just the 12, it's many disciples that are with him. And we all know that what they're saying has some truth in it, don't we? That anyone who has a pulse and has seriously listened to the teachings of Jesus comes at some point to them and says, this is a difficult teaching. Who can accept it? Who can, literally, who can hear it? For some, this is their first reaction upon hearing the message of Christ. Maybe it was yours. For others, the full reality of the gospel's claim on their life and its opposition to the values of this world don't become apparent until they follow Jesus for years and years. But at some point, all of us can identify with the group who look at Jesus and say, this is, this is too much. I'm not sure I can go this far with you. And Jesus and his teachings are not easily accepted by the world in the first century or in ours. The world and its sinful pride and self-righteousness cannot comprehend what Jesus has to say. There's a sense in which Edward Clink writes that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a foreign language to the human heart. And it seems as though in this moment in John chapter 6 that Jesus is speaking the language of the kingdom of God. And this crowd of people only know the language of the human heart. And more often than not, in their day and in ours, it causes us to stumble and is ultimately rejected because this is a, a hard teaching. You see, Jesus seems to do that to us, to put us in a place of conflict with the ways of the world, with the the flesh, as it were, so that we have to come to a decision point, a, a moment of surrender to either accept or reject the teaching that he places before us. He, he says, blessed are the meek. And we can't help but think, but that, that doesn't get you anywhere in my line of work. He says, blessed are the merciful, but surely he means only to a certain extent, Right? He says, blessed are the pure in heart, but, but we know we shouldn't really get carried away with that, right? He wouldn't want us to, to get all caught up in the purity part. Blessed are the peacemakers, he says, and making excuses, we say, well, except for when we feel like making noise or feeding the conflicts, because that's so much easier to be a part of the problem than to think about solutions. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, that beyond murder, it's, it's hatred of the heart that he's most concerned with. And, and we find a way to reason our way around hating our brothers and our sisters. It's, it's lust of the heart, he says, not just adultery that is my standard. And we say, this is, this is a hard teaching. He says, I want you to turn the other cheek. And we say, well, surely he means 
in moments when that makes sense to us. He says, I want you to give to the one who asks, to love without reservation, to sacrifice and to serve. And we say, at different moments in our lives, more often sometimes than others, but eventually we say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Who, who can hear it? Much less who can, who can live it? And so just like the large following of Jesus and John, one after another, our will comes in conflict with the will of God and we say, wait a minute, Jesus, how far are you going with this? We're not sure we're ready. And in that small synagogue in Capernaum, less than the size of the room we meet in now, one after another, the, the heads begin to fall down, their eyes fixed to the floor in embarrassment as their feet start to shuffle towards the door. And what had been a multitude becomes just a few in a matter of minutes when Jesus starts teaching difficult truth. Nobody wanted to meet the pastor after the service in the welcome center, just a few steps down the hallway on the Oregon side. They all made their way out the nearest door. The text tells us that they turned back to the behind things. They turned back to what had been behind them and no longer followed him. They had come this far. They'd, they'd followed the miracle prophet into the countryside in awe of what he was able to do. Filled to the brim with bread, they hurried across the lake to find him again. But on hearing this message, they begin to realize this is as far as we can go. This is too difficult. You've made this too hard to hear, Jesus, they say. You, you could have made it easier and we would stay. But you've made this so difficult, who can hear it? Robert Mount says here, was the decisive moment in the lives of many who are still somewhat undecided about Jesus. Maybe it's the same today. His insistence that he had come down from heaven as the true bread that brings life was not something that a, a person could accept and at the same time deny that it called for radical transformation, reorientation of their entire lives. See, the teachings of Jesus have a way of doing that of demanding that we either change and transform all of who we are to fit into them or we say no to them, convictions have a disturbing way of, of changing our lives. And the moment of truth had come and those in whose hearts faith had, had not actually established itself found it more comfortable to turn their backs on the only one who held the answer to the really important issues in life. And they file out slowly at first, small groups, then large ones with haste, seeking to get away from what hurt their ears as fast as they could. And they went back to where they were before, no longer walking with him. And so Jesus, in chapter 6, verse 66, turns to the 12. It's the first time in John that, that they're called that, the 12, this inner group. And he directs a question at them to challenge them, to ask them if they will have the same response that all of the others seem to be having in this moment. He looks at them and says, do you also want to go away? And the Greek language is used here 
with a word at the beginning of the sentence that, that lets us know that this is a question to which Jesus expects, anticipates a negative response. And so most of our translations help us with the wording. They say something like, you do not also want to go away, do you? And watching the uncommitted walk away, Jesus turns to the 12 and calls all of their allegiance to him into question. When things get difficult, now that I've begun to reveal who I really am, Jesus says, now that I've moved on from, from miracles and into talking about the one miracle who has come down from heaven to be food for your souls, do you also want to go away. And with all of their futures hanging in the balance, Peter steps forward, not shocking if you've known the biblical characters. He speaks on behalf of the, the whole group of 12 there and poses his own question back to Jesus in return. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else can we go? They're faced with the same crisis as all of the other disciples. The same crisis you've known as you've lived in the moments of life between those two questions that haunt us. Who can accept it? And where else can we go? And before Peter utters another word, I wonder where the minds of the other 11 went as they considered the possible answers to that question. Where else can we go? What were the options in the first century world that tugged at their heart and tempted them to move on? Who were the people, the voices, the teachings that might have tempted them in a moment like this? Where else could they have gone? Where else could we go when the sayings of Jesus get too hard to hear? Well, there were a number of groups that dominated the first century world, especially in Jewish life. We read about them all throughout the New Testament. They're usually the bad guys against Jesus. The scribes, for example. See, the Jewish faith had become all about the law. Understanding it, writing it, interpreting it. And a whole new occupation had come about just for that purpose. To copy and to understand the law of the Torah. And these scribes who may have started just as people who, who wrote it out for others had become people who interpreted it and, and applied it to every possible scenario in life. The scribes are all over the Gospels. They alone had the outrageous advantage of being able to navigate the jungle of possible scenarios that could come up in the application of the law. Whether or not it was lawful to eat an egg laid on the Sabbath, or whether on that day of rest you could set a ladder against the house to check on a problem, or whether water poured from a, a clean vessel into a, an unclean vessel also contaminated the source as well. See, if you don't want to deal with the teachings of Jesus, if you'd rather not have his life be the very sustenance of your life, you can just spend all your time talking about the hypotheticals of applying the law. And more than a few in their day may have been tempted to say, where else can we go? I'll just go talk about the law with these guys. This seems a lot simpler. And we can be distracted and motivated simply by understanding only and not application or the law only and not the life of love that Jesus offers and fall into the same traps the scribes had. Some of those scribes were from a second group, the Pharisees. 
If the scribes were people of the law and its interpretation, the, the Pharisees were people of, of personal piety that had turned into this awful sort of legalism they get so criticized for in the New Testament. They clash with Jesus over and over again, and sometimes we kind of oversimplify them and throw them under the bus as easy to dismiss. But the Pharisees had really begun to emphasize personal religion in the Jewish faith. People weren't always able to go to Jerusalem and to worship in the temple and to follow its rituals. And so they had begun to take that teaching out into the home, into the personal life about uh, piety and purity and cleanliness. The Pharisees had led the way in, in making faith a daily venture. And when worship and rituals surrounding the temple were on the decline, the, the Pharisees were working to interpret it so that it could be a daily guide for the Jewish people, not just something they did sometimes. And that's what led to all this legalism we see them trapped in in the New Testament. So that too was, was held out to these disciples as they asked, where else could we go? You see, the Pharisees might have tempted them to leave behind the ruler of it all and just make it about the rules. Because it's easier to follow the rules than to have a relationship with the ruler. And a third group came along. They were opposed to the Pharisees. They called themselves the, the Sadducees. If the Pharisees were all about personal piety and, and living out their faith at home, the Sadducees were all about the temple. They were the, the firmest traditionalists of the first century world. The Pharisees were proponents of the, the oral law that surrounded the Torah, but the Sadducees rejected that entirely. You had to be at the temple doing it the right way and the right rituals. That's the tradition. That's the true faith. And so they argued for it, they defended it, and they were opposed in many places to the Pharisees' work. They had no openness to change, no room for a, a spirit that could come from heaven, and no time for a Messiah who might mess things up in the order and structure that we had created. If the disciples were looking for someplace else to go, they could get consumed with all of that too. All the stuff that happens at the temple, the activities, the programs, the attendance, the rituals, and and yet we can perform every ritual and, and sit in the pew every time the doors are open and have never encountered the life of the Son. We can be at every program and perform every act given to us under man and still never surrender to the hard teaching of Jesus when it shows up and calls us to faith in Him alone. If the Pharisees were people of personal piety, the Sadducees were people of temple and ritual. And beyond those three major groups that you read about in your gospel accounts, there were others, separatists like the, the Essenes that we know of. They were a group who, who had big eschatological expectations, that is, big thoughts about the future of God's kingdom. If they lived in our world, they probably would have loved using billboards and setting dates on them for the end of the world. They would be convinced that they were the only people who knew the right ending of the world and when it was going to happen. They were so concerned with their own personal purity, they had removed themselves even from city life because there were too many unclean people there. They had pulled away in their faith and in their religion in such a way that they were disconnected from the world and no longer a part of it. And many people today fall into the same trap that when the teachings of Jesus get difficult, when they begin to, to rub against the world in which we live, they say, this would be an easier faith if we could just huddle together in a place of our own 
and never have to really encounter the world with the gospel. And the earliest disciples were tempted to be like the Essenes, people of separation and wild prophecy, to be consumed by things of the imagination, to theories and charts, instead of being consumed by the Lord in their midst. And if religion wasn't enough for the 11 who look back at Peter and wonder how they will answer this question, there were other options as well. The Egyptians had worshiped their pharaohs. The Persians had bowed to their sovereign. The Greeks adored their heroes. And it was the same in the Roman Empire in the day of Jesus. That if you didn't want religion of that kind, you could come and be a person of politics, a worshiper of the emperor. You could make yourself a kingdom right in front of you, one you could hold and grab and talk about. And no doubt all of these voices were pulling them in every direction when Peter looks them all in the eye and says, guys, where else can we go? And I can't help but think that some of them were tempted to say, life at the temple sure looks easy. Or you know, we, we've enjoyed these years following Jesus. We could simply stake out our own community out in the desert. We could be people of temple or people of separation. You know, the Pharisees have figured out this faith thing. Maybe they'll teach us their ways. We could become scribes. We're getting better at the law. Jesus has been an expert. Maybe we can make a living doing that instead. And friends, these options and countless more are not unique to the first century world. They surround you as you stand between those same two questions every day. This is a, a difficult teaching. Who can, who can hear it? And where else, where else can we go? And so Peter's question floats in the air on this day. And the disciples glance at one another, considering for a moment what their options are. Before too long, Peter helps them not get distracted by blurting out the right answer, a confession of faith, words that fall on us today more profound than Peter could have ever imagined. He says, you, you, Lord, have words of eternal life. And we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. You see, it's not that these 12 were left with nothing else to follow. And, and, and no other perspectives on life to consider, and neither are you. Like you, they had voices yelling in every direction about every kind of philosophy imaginable, pushing them to take a stance on every issue that came up every day and, and 10 ways to live those out. And yet they had to join with Peter in reminding themselves that only Jesus has words of eternal life. Where else, to whom else can we go? I heard the story recently of an Iraqi immigrant who was being relocated to the United States. She had found herself in Louisville, Kentucky. She had been in a Syrian refugee camp for some time, living, as it were, in spiritual fear. Her home there was, was surrounded by, by charms and other things that she had hoped would, would ward off bad luck and evil spirits. Uh, written around the walls were, 
were sayings and words and teachings that, that she hoped would, would accomplish that to keep spirits of evil away from her. When a, a Syrian Christian came to her house one day holding a New Testament and looked her in the eyes and said, I have words more powerful than these. She handed her a New Testament Bible. Reinhold Niebuhr says that Peter, the, the simple fisherman, couldn't have possibly surveyed all that preceded in philosophical arguments, nor all that generations ahead of him could possibly come up with. And yet the philosophies of the age have not added much to his one simple intuition. What Peter is saying is, in effect, what you demand of us is so difficult that we're almost tempted to follow the multitude in their desertion of you, Jesus. But you have helped us to look profoundly into the meaning of life. And we are not able to find a decent alternative to your way and to your truth. We live today in a world that is starving for truth. Longing for something real and trustworthy and right. And their ears are listening in every direction and sometimes it's a temptation of the Christian faith to think that all of this belief in a God we cannot see is something to be subtle about or, or ashamed of. And yet Peter's confession today comes to us in our, our weariness and our doubt and reminds us that we stand not on shifting sands like all the rest of the world, but on the only firm foundation. And we follow a Jesus who, who beckons us to receive the words of life that come in him and to take his teaching into ourselves with assurance and confidence that leads us to life. And that, friends, becomes the confession of the church of Jesus Christ, both to ourselves and to the whole world, that we have the words of eternal life and to the world, there is nowhere else you can go. And Peter reminds us we can proclaim that and live that with a confidence, perhaps that we've never had before, even when the teaching gets difficult. You see, what the masses couldn't see is that their vision for God was covered in sinful illusions. And when Jesus pushes them to the edge, they're revealed for who they are, a crowd only focused on themselves. They don't want the food for their souls. They just want the food for their stomachs. When the calling of Christ clashes with our own desires and when the cost of following Jesus seems too great, they choose not to surrender to him. They just can't let go of, of all that they think is better or, or, or more or, or more real than what Jesus has right in front of them. And that temptation not to surrender, to hold on to our own securities and our own teaching or our own ideas continues to this very day for us. The story is often told of Lord Nelson, a British naval leader who was known for his cordial acceptance of the surrender of multiple armies. And at one point during the Napoleonic Wars, he had def defeated a French admiral. As the story goes, the, the, the French admiral pulled his ship alongside Lord Nelson's, preparing to offer surrender, ending a long-standing battle between them. 
The French admiral steps onto the deck of, of Lord Nelson's ship and begins to make his way to him. Smiling and, and walking, he, he walks as one with confidence, his sword swaying to his side. He puts out his hand to Lord Nelson, to which Lord Nelson responds, first, your sword, then your hand. And so many of us live just like that before the Lord, our maker, with one hand up in worship and the other hand holding our sword. And Jesus says, if you would lay down your sword in surrender, I would take your hand and give you the only life that ever mattered. And, and yet we hold the sword of our own securities, of our own teachings, of our own struggles, of our worries, that he may not be enough, even as we attempt to worship him. And he says, if you would lay down your sword, I would give you my hand. I would give you life forever. Let's pray. Father, we come today holding all sorts of things that we believe protect us and defend us, entrapped by all kinds of teachings that promise to give us life or security or hope. And we ask ourselves today, Lord, to whom shall we go? And we pray that you would help us to answer and to confess with Peter. Only you have words of life, eternal life. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen.